everybody. This is Charles Hain here for the No Film School podcast for the week of April 27th, 2023. And I'm here with my co-host, Gigi Hawkins. Hello there. Good morning. So we are talking about sort of getting indie features made and, and the decisions behind indie feature revenue today. The first story we're talking about, Filmmaker Magazine, which if you don't read, you should read. It's great. Has a great article, Producer Data, The Numbers Don't Lie, which digs into a lot of sort of the revenue models that independent features face in a way that I think is sort of bracingly honest and I really appreciate. And uh, then we've got a great Ask No Film School that I'm going to go ahead and kick off with now. Usually we save it for the end, but the question is somewhat related. And so I think it's we're going to end up talking about both. And the question is, I listened to the interview with Matt Smuckler, thought it was great. But the thing that glossed over is, how do you get those scripts and ideas in front of talent? The interview talked a lot about having an all-star cast and how that was able to really help the movie. But how do you get to that all-star cast mm-hmm. for filmmakers making their first film? And I feel like all of these things are tied together into sort of a getting indie movies made. Theme. Theme. Yeah. And uh, so those are the two subjects we're going to be talking about this week. The first one is a concept that the article talks about quite a lot, which I thought was really interesting. Again, it's a very deep dive into revenue, but the article talks about in really explicit detail, something I did not understand when I started in the industry and something that I specifically didn't understand because I started in the nineties and the concept of sort of an elevator where a lot of the movies you think of as an indie movie, a lot of the movies you think of as like, this is an independent movie. Uh, because you don't know the writer and you don't know the director doesn't mean that the movie was made independent of the industry in any way, shape or form. And if you dig in and you look at the producers, the executive producers, the financers, you're likely to see more traditional indie players because a lot of those lower budget movies that make it to attention, that make it through all the gatekeepers, through all the filters to actually make it to an audience. A lot of those movies are actually, they're independent in that, you know, a studio doesn't finance them because studios don't really make movies below $50 million anymore or 20 maybe, but (laughs) they are still from within what we think of as being the elevator. And the reason why I say I was blind to this is that in the nineties, there was a brief moment, the first half of the nineties where people like Kevin Smith and there are a few other good examples could really go out and make a film on credit cards and then get it to a festival, get distribution, get theatrical and have it pay itself back and make money. You know, Blair Witch Project legitimately made outside of the system. Clerks, there's a few other good 90s examples. The Puffy Chair, a little bit later than the 90s, but the sort of like mumblecore or just scrappy filmmaking days. But even, I would say Puffy Chair is probably the end of that. Yeah. In that, By the time of the puffy chair and then soon after it, digital technology had gotten so easy that there were just going to be a lot more of those films. And so within five years of puffy chair, which is what, 2005, 2006, Mm -hmm. we get to a place where, you know, as opposed to there's like 12 interesting movies competing for the, we don't know you slot at Sundance, (laughs) there becomes the 150 or a thousand interesting features that are competing for that. We don't know you slot at Sundance. And the reason why I call it the, we don't know you slot at Sundance. I always tell this, I've told this story a million times. I was at Kodak picking up the film for my thesis at USC. And I was at Kodak 
And I was chatting to the person next to me in line who was producing some indie feature. And she was like, oh yeah, I got out of USC about 15 years ago. And we were talking about that. And she's like, so I'm going to tell you this. When I graduated, I knew no one who got into Sundance. And now I know everyone who gets into Sundance. And what you should take from that is that everybody who gets into Sundance knows each other. And it's not entirely true. Sundance is actually pretty good about trying to let in interesting, weird stuff. And But like 80% of what's getting into a Sundance, a slam dance, a, you know, those sort of ladder festivals are these elevator films, these independent yeah. films, but there's a producer with a long track record. There is a screenwriter, well, less often the screenwriter, often someone in the producing team has a track record and, and connections and and has done this before. The true independent puffy chair clerks, we just did this on a credit card and it's so good. It has a life is not impossible and it's still going to happen every other year. There's going to be a film like that. That's just so good. You can't deny it, but it's rarer and rarer. And the article sort of breaks it down between like the golden elevator films um, and then free range films, which is a film from uh term by director Maria Nieto. And I like the term free range films. Those like you are totally outside the industry. You, you, none of you have already gotten repped. None of you have any kind of, kind of connections and you are making a thing sort of completely outside. And the thing to remember is that as our industry changes so quickly, we are very much looking at like what was true five years ago is not true today. And especially yeah. what was true 30 years ago is not true today. And so I think the fantasy a lot of people have is I'm just going to make this thing and it's going to be so good. Nobody can deny me. And I think that there's probably some strategic value in, in, you know, I remember when I was about to move to LA in 99, I got to talking to someone in a Photoshop. I used I, I was I very feel like chatty. This is a recurring theme in your early career. I'm chatty. Developing uh, film and connecting with people at the same yeah. time, which is great. And, I mean, what a great way to connect with people. But this was in DC and she was like, you can't go to LA. You got oh. to stay in DC and you got to build something here. Hot take. And like, I don't know what my life would have been if I'd done that. I legitimately do not know. But if you look at like, I think that might've been true for a brief time around 2000. I mean, there's what's his face, Craig, who did the porn hungry in Memphis and then went on to hustle and flow and a bunch of other big films. Mm -hmm. Like he was like, I'm going to stay in Memphis. And in 2003, 2004 did a digi flick that blew up the porn hungry that got him hustle and flow. And then his careers continued. I think that there is an argument that you can make for that, but I think that's less true than it used to be. I think it's more that you need to go to New York or LA and develop some sort of infrastructural relationship system to have your movie, not only get made, but make it to eyeballs and attention. Right. Right. And, and I think of like kind of what an indie film looks like today. And again, of course, there are the, uh, the exceptions to the rule. I think of there's a team that will be interviewing later this year, uh, and they've had their second feature come out at South by Southwest, but their first one was called The, the End of Us. And it's about a couple breaking up during the pandemic. And it was like co-directed by these guys. They shot it. And it was a just a tiny little team and they got onto South by and then got financing for their second film. But like that does feel like l fewer and fewer versus like a indie film that I think of like nine out of 10 of them star Robert Pattinson. And I'm like, he's the reason this film has financing. He is their golden elevator. And like, thank God he's signing on and, and, 
you know, it seems like all the Twilight people are just, you know, have supported indie films since their Twilight days. But like that is different than the indie film of Clerks and the Blair Witch Project. Like that is just fundamentally golden elevator filmmaking. And the idea of have a celebrity in your movie and it will help goes back to like the birth of independent cinema. You can see Mm -hmm. movies from like the 70s and the 80s where like the idea is I get a TV star. Like that's not a new thing. But that was always one way. And then there were these like free range movies that could sneak in. And now we're very much in the world where, you know, the fact that our Pats loves independent cinema and is an all around interesting guy and a phenomenal actor who's willing to do great stuff is just like, like, God bless our Pats. Uh, yeah. God bless Case, too. God bless like people who are like, I will have the star power and I will bring Michael bring B. Jordan it. and bring it to these independent movies that then like become a thing that I am using my star power for good and not evil. It's all, it's all Spider-Man-y stuff. I mean, Tobey Maguire has done that with some indie indie movies. So I think there's like, there are a lot of ways. There's a lot of value in that. But it's also, I mean, I think that, you know, another way to look at this is that you can also decide to go participate in the industry. Like if you have done two indies and they Mm -hmm. haven't broken out like they, like you thought they wanted, like, you know, I have a friend who made a movie in the nineties and it went well. And then he sort of ran out of momentum and he, and he took an assistant job and he was like in his thirties and he was like, yeah, this sucks. It's really annoying. Like I had a moment of heat, but now the heat's over and now I'm an assistant in my thirties. And like, he was like, it is bruising to my ego, but I need to stay in the mix. And then things got going again. I think that's super smart. I mean, I feel very similarly with my career. I, took an assistant job in my 30s, which I think brought momentum in a different way because I hadn't had a hit film or heat behind me in any capacity in the film industry. But I think it it was able to build my network and, and have a, there's like an element of just, like you said, getting back into the mix of things. And actually to, to answer, to go back to the no film school question in particular, what's interesting about the case of Wildflower and Matt Smuckler's experience is he he made a documentary first. So he had a, a very strong proof of concept. Um, and he was starting to bring the project to talent. And he asks the question, how do you get to talent? And I think that the best answer to that is hustle. You know, you have to, you know, try to be in the mix and use all of your connections. And there's a really great short sci-fi short film called Skywatch that's directed by Colin Levy. And it came out a couple of years ago. I think it was six years in the making, funded with Kickstarter, crafted by volunteering artists across the world. And it stars Jude Law. And he has a whole explainer video about how he got Jude Law to attach to the project. There's a twist to it though. Jude Law is in one single shot at the very end of the short. It's a 10 minute, 34 second short. And you'll see in the explainer video how he, one, racked his network systematically attacking everyone he knew. And and he ended up having a friend of a cousin of a cousin who is cousins with Jude Law, who he was able to say, will you do this one shot? And and that being able to attach Jude Law to the short is what, you know, got it so much momentum and also helped you know, get people involved. So I think it's, I I just appreciate Colin Levy's hustle 
and not taking no for an answer because I I feel like that is he was forcing himself into the mix. And I look at Matt Smuckler, who has had a very lucrative career in in advertising. Uh, so he has been hustling in his own capacity for for many years. But you know, he was able to get it in front of Kiernan Shipka with proof of concept and having her attached, and then getting, you know, a cast of so many others attached, whether it's Gene Smart. Alexandra Daddario, just a fantastic cast. But I think that one name attached also builds momentum because if you look at any indie film like or film, an, another great example is Palm Springs. Once Andy Samberg was attached to it and fell in love with the script, the script being a fantastic script, like he was able to pro- come on as a producer and bring his other friends involved. So I think, you know, if you have a solid project, and you get it in front of the right people by hustling your network and constantly building connections, like that feels like the way to do it if you're outside of the system. You have to get into the system. Yeah. I was going to say, the first thing is, it's very true what you say, that the first attachment is what matters more than anything else. Because when you have no one attached and you are like, join my project, and they're like, who's attached? And you're like, me. That is... (laughs) You know, that is something. Who are you? Once, we don't once know you. Once you have something, the first question everybody else can ask, especially as they look at cast and they're like, oh, I'm going to be this part. And can I, like, who am I going to be doing these scenes with or whatever? Your first attachment is the hardest and most important. And especially because, you know, if you can, you want to get your first attachment to also be a producer and to bring a bunch of people on. I've definitely worked on movies where, like, you can tell who the first, like, the first attachment also became a producer and then the entire cast, you're like, oh, you were in that movie with that person and that movie with that person. And that's how you know everybody. And then like everybody came on board because you, you know, which also argues that it is good to be strategic when developing a project Mm -hmm. to have a part that could be that first attachment is a thing to think about. But the second thing is, you know, being in the mix in some way helps. Like I have a friend who this person is now we didn't know this in the 90s, but Kevin Spacey did a voice in a friend of mine's thesis film. Mm-hmm. And like my buddy was just a PA on a movie that Kevin Spacey was in and gradually became friendly with him and asked him to do the voiceover. And it took Kevin Spacey a day to do the voiceover. And then that film showed in like 40 festivals. And like it was a very good film. Wow. Did it help show in a bunch of festivals that it had Kevin Spacey? Probably. Yeah. So, you know, it's something that you want to. People will take a look at it. Yes. So, but he got that relationship by being a PA. And the, the the other thing to remember with this casting process is it's all relationships and history and connection. And so when you're going out, you probably, when you start, you're not going to know every agent in town. You're not going to know all the managers. You're not going to know the gatekeepers. And because they don't know you, the gatekeepers are going to ignore you, which is like fine because they get pestered. Like, I feel bad for agents. If you're an agent yeah. of a hot actor, I don't feel that bad. But like, I am sure <laughs> you get pestered by like, I remember reading for creative artists and it was right after a beautiful mind came out and I was reading a bunch of stuff submitted for Ron Howard. And it mm-hmm. like, obviously it's creative artists. There's good stuff, but you read through everything. And there was some stuff where I was like, Oh my God, you know, like, like not, not professional quality work that people were trying to get in front of Ron Howard's eyes. And I'm sure that there are projects trying to get our pats attached that are embarrassing or racist or something. Yeah. There's like a lack of, I think there's stuff, People have a lack of EQ and they're like, well, of course you'd want to be in this movie. And it's like, no, that is the that is why there are these systems in place and why people don't accept unsolicited submissions. Yeah. 
But a producer with a track record, a producer who's been doing any movies for 20 years and made something that person likes, they will like one of the jobs of a producer is to know a lot of agents and managers. Mm -hmm. So when you're calling people, you're calling people, you know, and like, that's a different call. You can get things read by people. You know, I've worked on projects where there were people that I was like, oh, wow, this person's reading this weekend. That's so great. And it was because of a producerial relationship that was big enough to get people to pick up the phone and to read the things. A casting director is also really useful here. Mm -hmm. I've worked on a number of projects over the years where one of the first people paid was the casting director. Because if oh, yeah. you can hire a casting director who's done a lot of indie stuff, like, and what you, you want to do is you don't want to just, you want to buy MDB Pro and you want to look through like movies from the last five years with a budget that is like yours that cast casts you like mm -hmm. and contracts those casting directors and, or see if you can get intros or see if you have a connection through LinkedIn or whatever. That's who you want. Cause I've also, I worked on one project with like the wrong casting director and like, it was just a battle. Like, oh, you, no. I mean, we just never saw eye to eye on anything. Mm -hmm. Every single decision. I was like, really that person you think, but they, they had power and sway and they got everything read. They got things read by big people. Wow. So an experienced casting director or an experienced producer is often the key to that, like, no-name director, no-name screenwriter actually getting interesting people to read the project and consider attaching. Yeah. Can I also just make a plug for humility in general? Because it you never know who you're going to overlap with who will then become a decision-maker or a gatekeeper or somebody that you'll need something from. And I think that there, I, I've recently experienced a couple of different people pushing their, their work on me and pushing something in a way that when I had no personal connection to this person and it was really jarring and made me feel, feel really gross and bad about the relationship. And there's, there's something and I've also seen the exact opposite. Like I've seen people do the work to build a connection with me personally. And it's not like I am a decision maker or hold much sway at all. And ironically, I love connecting people when I can and when I can help out. But there was just this really like two twice last week, I had this sort of like entitled request for something. And it was just such a bummer to get, you know, I was like, damn it, I was going to. I, I, you never want to see that because it's just like, well, there's, there goes any effort that I was going to put into this relationship. Well, it's also funny how fast that happens. Like I started a, you know, for a couple of years, I had a very successful production company. The production company is still in business. I'm just a professor now. I'm like, even before we were in a position, even before we'd made a feature, like while I was there, we made two features and a bunch of shorts and commercial music videos. But even before either feature got made, the fact that I had a production company and we were doing music videos and commercials, people started getting in touch with me in wildly inappropriate ways hmm. to, to like evaluate their stuff or, or to consider it or whatever. And like, it's like, guys, we haven't even made our first feature yet. And I, you know, people are very hungry for anything that can lead anywhere, which I understand. Yeah. We're, we're all trying to get things going and, and that's part of it. So I understand that, but. You know, I always give, it's the end of the semester here. Um, and I always think about, I give this presentation at, at the end of the semester of like how you should interact with your professors in the future, because like mm -hmm. a professor can be a lifelong gift. 
I have people I talked 20 years ago who are still in touch with me. I have professors from USC where I went 18 years ago. I'm still in touch with, but like, you want to think strategically about that relationship. You want to think like, like every once in a while, a former student will ask me some weird tech support question. And I don't even respond because I'm like, I'm not the right venue for that. Yeah. Like I'm your professor. You should be thinking about like advice about big job decisions or like connections to big relationships or like reference letters. But like, I'm not going to do tech support for you. Right. And like, it's everything in life requires like that EQ. You talked about the emotional um, quotient or what does EQ stand for? Emotional intelligence. Emotional EI, I guess. I don't know what the Q stands for. Let me Google this. Well, I think that's left over from IQ. So I think it's shortening EIQ to EQ. Emotional quotient. Emotional quotient. Or emotional intelligence. You want to look for the, like, you want to think strategically about, like, who is this person and and what can they do? And also, you want to listen. I mean, my Mm -hmm. stock answer at the time was like, hey, we have a reader. Send me the script and I'll get my reader to read it. Because we had a reader. Like, we were trying to get movies made. We had people reading. They were good. And like the people who were like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'll just send it to your reader. I, I have no disrespect for, and like, we keep going relationships, but I remember a couple of people who were like, no, but I don't even want to send this to your reader. I know, I know you. And then they would send me like these disjointed gibberish text messages. Oh, and no. I would be like, no, but I communicated to you how you should communicate with me. And you want something from me in this scenario. So here's how that would work. And it was the weirdest. There's also power, I think on the other side that, I'm only recently engaging with, but it is the power of saying no or, and I have had actually some really thoughtful, polite no's in this industry that I respect. I'm like, oh, thank you for, thank you for that. Like, and I, and, and then it's like respecting that this person has set some boundaries. So I think on the flip side, like that is, you know, the power to know where you're adding value and also to, I think, it's cool that you're taking the time to teach your students how to engage with people to build meaningful relationships. Because like, obviously, some of us are more intuitive with, when it comes to EQ stuff. Some of us are just like hyper-analytical brains and are how do we get our projects moving forward? And if you're in that one-track mind, you can still exercise or go through the practice of this respectful way of approaching things. And it's not, I think at the end of the day, as personal as it feels because it's your project and your baby and you have, you know, worked so many late nights outside of your day job to make it happen. Like it's rarely is it is a no personal against you if like if if you've built that meaningful relationship and then by building that meaningful relationship, that personal connection will more likely turn something into a yes. So there's a there's a dance there of not taking the nose personally, but still building that personal relationship that I think is important. Yeah. I mean, the, the industry is going to say no more than it says yes. And frankly, sometimes it's saying no for projects that should legitimately not get made. Yeah. So it's it's better to learn how to navigate no's from people and build a relationship out of it. I mean, one casting director I know talked to me about the fact that they were like 90% of my interaction with agents are them saying no to stuff Mm -hmm. because I might go out to 20 people. You know, you go out one at a time. Like you're trying to cast the lead in your film. You don't go out to 20 people at once. You're going out to like 20 people, like, like one week at a time, you're going out to different people, trying to attach people to your thing or whatever. And there's a weekend read and then there's thoughts and notes. And you know, if you're a casting director, 99.9% of your interactions with agents are people saying no. 
because that's just the nature of the job. It's not like you go out to one person and they say yes and hooray. And so if you don't develop the ability to hear that no and continue the professional relationship and how to navigate that so that you can ask again. And I've definitely worked with people like where we've gone out to someone who like casts for a specific niche, like actors over 75 or something, and we're going out for one and then that one passes. I'm like, a good agent will totally come back with other options. And you can right. have this ongoing relationship where they're like, oh, hey, you know, this one's not available. This person's not available, but I've got a couple other people I think this would be right for. Can we have a conversation? Can we look at what we can do? And like, that is what you want to try and build so that you can have these ongoing relationships. But the key to that is respecting when someone says no and recognizing their boundaries when they do that for how it can work. The tricky part of that is that sometimes, you know, we all also have professional experiences. I mean, I have at least where like, I've had people say no two or three times and we kept going back because I was like, no, you're right for this. And eventually they say yes. But like, that's not in every scenario. Right. And you have to be very conscious of like how you navigate that. And you also hit on something that is just a, the a fact of life, which is, oh, this person's not available. Like there's could be a million other factors coming into play because the uh, uh, behind a no, it's not always based on the project. It could be that like this production company or this actor is truly at their slate is at full capacity. They can't take anything on. And I, we've probably talked about this in the past, but there is also this like interesting danger to a yes. If you're having, say, a director attached to a project, but they're not available for four years, like, is that better? I don't I think mean, so. It, depends. <laughs> it means not making your project for four years and potentially like it getting well, pushed it, it back. It goes back to that great scene in The Departed, which is, do you want to be a cop <laughs> or do you want to appear to be a cop? Mm. And like, there are a lot of people who want to appear to be a filmmaker. Yeah. Having a thing that you are working on, that you have attachments to, that is going to happen later is something that there are. And like, this is a big problem with some directors, but it's also a big problem with producers. I know producers who call themselves producers and who've had deals on studio lots and haven't made anything in 20 years, but things are always about to happen soon. And they have a relationship or a connection mm. or something because some people don't want to be a producer. They want to appear to be a producer for yeah. whatever benefit that gives them in whatever weird. So it is a tricky thing there. Can I ask a producer question? Sure. Um, because it, being a producer is one of the more nebulous jobs in this industry. Uh, you touched on earlier how it is often being connected is critical. Being able to call up agents and managers who you know is critical. When you're an emerging producer, how do you sort of like balance the, this is going to happen, this is going to happen if you don't have the track record? Because we've talked a lot about like bringing producers on with a track record, but what if you're a producer sort of on the come up? Well, I hate to say it, but it depends on how big your bank account is. Mm -hmm. If you have a checkbook because of family connections or because of stock market, or if you got out of crypto at the right time, <laughs> it, it's different. You can just say, I'm a producer and try and get movies made. And, and that can work if there's a bankroll behind it. And there are certainly people out there who, who have the cash who are like, I'm producing stuff. If you don't have the bankroll, it, uh, the most surefire way I have seen for people to become powerful producers 
is to work for a while for another powerful producer. Hmm. And that can be tricky because it's yet another hurdle to jump through. It's yet another gate to get through. It's yet another like, oh, okay, I've already done all this and now I have to do this. But like spending two to five years as a producer working for other producers, you will learn everything they know. You will develop relationships with all of their people. You will develop relationships with all of their assistants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I had a guest last week in my class who is a very powerful producer at this moment who talks very honestly about like being an assistant, being an office PA, like starting the career, setting up the bagel spread, but, Mm -hmm. you know, listed a lot of the other assistants that they knew at the time. And like, they are all powerful producers 20 years later. So it is, that is probably the better path to be honest. That actually is also one of the paths of one of the producers on Wildflower. She she was working for the producer who's the head of the production company, and then she rose up, and now she's, you know, producing this film alongside her former boss. So just a case study of one. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, if I could go back and tell 20-year-old me one thing, it would be, you know, spend longer as an assistant. Like I was an intern assistant for a while and I should have put more effort. I I pivoted to set, which was great. Mm -hmm. And in your 20s set is fun. Mm -hmm. And I lost my teeth on a set. I had adventures. No, I mean the original teeth. Oh, if you don't, if you don't know, if you think my voice sounds weird, it's because my daughter kicked my teeth out. And, (laughs) um, but originally I lost my teeth on set 20 years ago. My daughter kicked the crown out that was put where my, Mm. so she kicked out of faith. She saw it right through your crown and said, this is in it too. She's of the age where it's probably going to be her first memory. And her first memory will be one of power, which I really love. I love that for her. She she will feel very strong. She will always know that she would win in a fight, which I like. Um, But no, the, uh, you know, I pivoted to set, which is great. And I loved my decade on set and it was fun. And I got flown all over the world and it was crazy adventures and I like it. But the problem with that decade on set is you only get to know the producers who are on set, Mm -hmm. which is not all of the producers on a project. There is like the line producer who's there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and like one of the lead producers. But if there's like eight producers on a project, a couple of them will be on set all the time. And then there'll be someone who's like prepping the next location. And then there's people back in the studio. And like, there's people like, there's a lot of moving pieces. And I didn't develop those relationships with them. And it might have been more strategic to do that. Yeah. Um, and I think if you're listening to this podcast and you're 18 or 19 or 20, and you're like, should I go to LA for a few years? Unfortunately, LA is no longer cheap, but I think spending five years working as a producer's assistant in that world, because all of the assistants know each other. All of the assistants are on email threads with each other. They have like a monthly networking thing at the yeah. farmer's market in LA. Like there is a thing where they all know they are trying to go somewhere and they work very hard to know each other now so that when something happens, they will all know each other. And there's true camaraderie, like when you are scheduling the most out of control schedules with somebody. And I remember uh, I was on a thread with two other assistants and we basically got to the end of the line, figuring out that our the schedules we were trying to figure out would not meet. And one of them, and then it was the final email was like, oh, sorry, that doesn't work. And then the other responded, blasts. Okay, 
onward to this thing. How about these? And I just looked at that email and it made me so happy. And I was like, this is somebody that I want to work with. Somebody who says blast and then moves on. And like, it was just this wonderful moment of like, here we are in the trenches of doing something that feels very close to impossible. And it was so refreshing. And that person will always, always have a thought that I will always have a fondness for them. And you also, you get to listen in to all the calls that make the industry happen because mm-hmm. the industry still happens on the telephone and you sit in on all those calls and you listen to the producer as they try and attach talent to a project. Yeah. So you get firsthand knowledge of someone who's actually doing it, how they're doing it right now, what the numbers they're talking about are, what the deals they're talking about are. And then you'll often hear them after they get off the call, they'll call you with notes about like, oh, we offered this, but we're actually going to try and get this, or we're going to try and get it back down to this, or we're still going out to someone else or whatever. And you get all of that stuff in greater detail than you can get anywhere else. And I think that is, as you look at, I want to make my indie feature, that is such invaluable knowledge for how the universe operates. Right. So that if you are lucky enough that you're, you know, you make friends with someone's cousin and they can get that, that script to the person, you're also to better pro- to Jude Law, who's or not R- canceled I- yet, we hope, or our paths. Hopefully you'll know better how to handle the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And be more confident and comfortable and less starstruck. So I guess this the overall a- the overall theme of this episode, which isn't what we set out with, <laughs> but it's but it is get in the mix. Yeah. Like the idea, I still harbor this fantasy that like people I know or me or whatever will be able to make like things completely independent of the system. But I don't know that's so incredibly rare mm-hmm. that it's not strategic. And if you're trying to be strategic, getting in the mix increases your opportunity to be near the heat. Yeah. The heat, it just feels like a way to work work smart and having the exposure, you know, it does, it does feel like you, you've earned being in the rooms. If you've, if you've done the work to, you know, spend all those hours and sometimes years listening in on these calls and learning. And even though, you know, it may feel like a desk job or a paper pushing job, it's not that you are in essentially grad school learning how this industry works. And there really isn't a book for how the industry works. You just have to be in the mix. Well, I I remember once I asked a friend, right when Twitter started, I asked a friend, because I like to read a book to understand something. And I asked a friend, I was like, can I read a book to understand Twitter? And he's like, by the time a book is published, Twitter is different. (laughs) And um, I, I think the real point is like, by the time, like there are things that are holistically true about agents for the last hundred years. There are things that are true about agents in 1958 that are true about agents in 2024. Definitely. Is the truth that that they still roll calls? Oh yeah. Which I did not know what that was until I became assistant. I thought it was, I didn't know what it was. I thought I knew what it was. And then it was like, this is not what I thought it was. Do you want to share for our listeners what rolling calls is? Rolling calls is an art. It is, and a science. It is the process of addressing your boss's ongoing list of outstanding conversations that they need to complete by tracking who has called or who they have left 
uh, word with or who they have connected with on the call. And I had a pretty, what they say, light desk in terms of the flow of rolling calls. But there are people who all day are rolling calls. And it's this dance of managing managing this communication style. And because the industry moves so quickly, I think weirdly it's efficient for getting work done. And you are calling other people's assistants, trying to get them on the call and they're trying to squeeze you in while they're working between calendars, et cetera. Uh, So often it'll be like dialing in somebody who is driving down the freeway. There's actually what I would say a, a perfect execution of a call being a, a call being rolled in and getting the right people on the line in the movie Barbarian at the midpoint. I'm like, that is just a spot on industry phone call if you haven't seen it yet. So yeah, I hope that demystifies it just a little bit. And it really works better with iPhones than Androids, unfortunately. I mean, why is that unfortunate? I'm going to I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that iPhone superior to Android. I don't like the green text. I was, um, I was just so stubborn in trying to keep my Android because I was anti-iPhone for a while. And my poor boss was so, she was so patient with me. And then I finally got an iPhone and I was like, why did I make my life so hard for yeah. all this I mean, time? There, there are like tech policy reasons to want to believe in freedom. And I like, I respect Linux folks who are out fighting the Linux fight, but with iPhone and Google, like both iPhone and Google have privacy problems. Google arguably has much worse privacy problems. So if there were a third competitor in the phone wars that was like 100% Linux based and like a total secure black box, and it wasn't like a shady fly by night company aimed at drug dealers, um, (laughs) I would be interested in that. But, but like if both the options are weird, huge mega companies, and one of them is slightly better on privacy and has a way better UI, I'm going to go for slightly better on privacy and way better UI, even yeah. if they're not perfect on privacy. Yeah. Um, it is also, if you're out there and you're not in LA or New York and you're like, I'm a PC person, the film industry just runs on Mac. It's just like the entire film industry is Mac and iPhone. It is. They, they, they really got, they got hold in the 80s and they never let go. The rolling calls thing is a fascinating thing because you also learn to juggle like 9 million aspects of like this wasn't me, this was the assistant. I was just the intern. But the boss when I was an intern was buying a new Jaguar. And so the assistant had to keep track of like the three different dealerships and what their prices were. And so, like, you know, there'd be a call about negotiating a deal or going out to an agent. And then the next call would be with the like Jaguar of San Dimas talking about yes. pricing and like, and it was just like watching the poor assistant's brain have to keep track of all these moving pieces. It's wiring was, somebody to be a producer. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I think there is something in it that is still, you know, a, an apprentice thing that is still useful. Useful, feels like it's from 1948, but prob- it does feel like it's wiring because a producer has to be thinking about a million things at once and has to be on top of it and has to be prioritizing and yeah. removing barriers at the same time. So, yeah, the art of rolling a call. All right. So I think I think we've answered the Ask No Film School and addressed the wonderful article, which I found out about by Manette Louie, posted about it on Mastodon. I have one last story for the week. Oh, do tell. Well, it's a really short one. Okay. Digital Sputnik, are you out of business? I tweeted at you. I emailed you. I called the phone number on your website, <laughs> which like 
as an elder millennial was a real challenge for me. Like I'm not a boomer. I'm not inclined to pick up the phone, but I need to replace <laughs> my big. power supply on a digital Sputnik light I own. And I'm trying to, and did you go to business and did nobody notice? Cause I it's certainly so missed sad. it if you went out of business. And so I've reached the level of, are you there? Where I talk about it on a podcast. Are you and there, Digital Sputnik? It's me, yeah. Charles. They're a lighting company. They make they they had a bunch of lights in Rogue One. They had a bunch of lights on Dune, which only came out like two years ago. But they appear to be out of business. So if anybody has any interest in explaining to me what happened to Digital Sputnik, that might be our story of the week. Digital Sputnik closed? Question mark. Question mark. That yeah. actually. Although, oh, go anytime ahead. you see a question mark in a headline, you can always assume the answer is no. Yeah. I did do a clickbaity thing on Instagram where I was like, the answer will surprise you. And I was like, what am I? An outbrain and Taboola article. Those are the from things 2012. that from 2012. Um, I do want to make a plug for this week's interview. It's with Kelly Freeman Craig, the writer and director of Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, speaking to the universe. And she is just fantastic. She talks a lot about the process of writing such a story with so much weight to it. Imagine having to answer to generations of women and people who read this book when they were coming of age. And the film is just so wonderful. I recommend seeing it in theaters and it comes out this weekend. Awesome. You're going to love it, Charles. It has like 90s nostalgia vibes. I, I, rem- I was there. I remember. <laughs> All right. All right. Oh, you oh can... so I'm on oh. Mastodon, Charles Hain at barbecue.snoot. You can check me out there. Mastodon's great. I'm on everywhere at Lost in Graceland. And you can follow No Film School on social media at No Film School and read more articles on nofilmschool.com. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>